Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about the relationship between horror fiction and horror movies. In the beginning, even back to the silent era, the most popular and renowned horror films were based on popular novels. Witness Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Phantom of the Opera, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, to name a few. In the 1930s, fright films actually became a genre unto their own for the first time, with movies based on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man, and countless others. Though not all of the horror classics from the dawn of the genre were based on books, the vast majority of memorable ones were. But as time progressed, the genre became much more cinematic and stories were fashioned that could only be films and had no literary antecedent. 1941's The Wolfman was created whole cloth by screenwriter Kurt Siodmak, and a slew of monsters were created by the movies and for the movies. There were monsters and murderers from the creature from the Black Lagoon to a nightmare on Elm Street. But books have long provided the backbone to many of our more beloved nightmares, from Robert Bloch's groundbreaking Psycho, through Ira Levin's remarkable Rosemary's Baby, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, Stephen King's The Shining, Thomas Harris's The Silence of the Lambs, Koji Suzuki's The Ring, Ryu Murakami's Audition, and countless others. How many of them have you read? How much of the spaces between the words in these novels adapted for the screen can you fill in? Do you read the books? Do you play the, oh, the books are so much better than the movies game? There's so much to be gleaned from the novels that inspire the movies, all of the internal workings of the characters' minds and motivations. Where are the modern horror novels that inspire the great filmmakers of today to create deep, dark terrors? Of course, Stephen King just seems to keep going and going and going, the ever-ready rabbit of horror. R.L. Stein's Fear Street is kicking up the frights on Netflix. Adam Neville's The Ritual was inspired and inspiring. And Alan Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. 
Let the Right One In by John Lindquist is certainly one to reckon with. But what's next? Grady Hendrix is a great contemporary novelist who specializes in horror, and his latest book, The Final Girls Support Group, has just been announced as being adapted to the screen. It may be a golden age of horror on the large and small screen, but on the printed page? Who are the new masters of literary horror? What will launch the next classic horror movie? Really, I'm asking, I'm looking, and I'll bet you have some great suggestions. Let me know. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead have been a writing and directing team that has created their own smart, horrific science fiction universe set in a grounded earthbound world that we all live in. Their films define the best parts of independent features, smart, iconoclastic, thought provoking, and very much their own. But now they are venturing into the Marvel universe on the series Moon Knight. We'll talk with them about straddling the worlds of independent features and mass market Marvel storytelling after this. Heavy Metal Magazine and the new fantasy, sci-fi, and horror platform Everscapes are releasing an exclusive two-part series of NFTs backed by George C. Romero, son of George A. Romero, as a precursor to The Night of the Living Dead. The Rise explores the story before the worst night on Earth with an amazing collection of exclusive NFTs. Immerse yourself in this terrifying saga through a 100-piece limited-edition NFT collection that includes rare art, 3D digital sculpts, motion comics, and more, all brought to life, or death, for the very first time. There will be two waves of terror with the first 50-piece set launching on Halloween. Visit everscapes.io now. That's E-V-E-R-S-C-A-P-E-S dot I-O now. Hey, Postmortem fans, producer Joe here to let you know that today's podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I can tell you, with all the stress that comes from working in the movie industry, that is something I ask myself every day. Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's easy. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. There are a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in many areas, and the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted daily like this one. Within two sessions, many of my issues have become clearer, and BetterHelp has provided me with comfort and confidence to move forward. Visit BetterHelp.com postmortem, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2,000 people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. And we have a special offer for postmortem listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash postmortem. That's betterhelp.com. 
Available now from Dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She's been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. Val is out now everywhere you buy or rent movies, and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Val. Guys, great to see you. I see you are in Budapest. We are. Yeah. We are. We, actually, if you look behind Aaron's head, there's a beautiful Hungarian building. It was a church built in the turn of the century, the other turn of the century, <laughs> to honor the king of Hungary. Nice. It seems we always meet up outside of the U.S. in various festivals, but now you're working on something special. You're doing Moon Knight, which is a step into the Marvel universe. And this is a very unique turn of events because you've spent your career avoiding the studio and network machine because of the very personal nature and and original nature of your features. So let's go back to, to the first one. Let's go back to resolution and where that came from and starting out basically do-it-yourself movie making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Aaron and I had just met as interns at a commercial production company in Los Angeles. And um, we had started to build a reel of like spec ad commercials or just like commercials that you make so that hopefully a commercial production company gives you a job so you can direct them. Our thinking being it was like, all right, well, if you did some good <laughs> commercials and you did some good music videos that someday someone would hire you to direct a movie. But what we found was, was that at the time, this is like 2009, um, commercials and music, not music videos, but commercials at least were this place that people went to to make a very good living who were already established as filmmakers, whether commercial directors or feature film directors, whatever it was. Um, so we just saved up like roughly $20,000, wrote a script to accommodate that. Um, that everything in it was stuff that we could do with about 10 of our friends. I think that the biggest, the biggest crew day we had on that resolution was like 14 people, 18 people. I don't even know. It might've been, it might've been 10. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, was like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, we went off into the boonies of San Diego and, uh, and, and made that movie resolution and then submitted it to a bunch of film festivals. Uh, Tribeca film festival ended up accepting it at some point, huge stroke of luck. As the lore goes, it was, it was rejected and put in the garbage can, but someone thought the rejection notes were really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it it probably was put in the metaphorical garbage can, like deleted from a spreadsheet or something like that. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but also it's weird, 2009, this is when every, we actually, actually, everything you yeah. sent was on DVD. Yeah, we, we, we uh, had a burned DVD with a Sharpie that just scratched up DVD that actually said resolution on it. And I actually remember there was a film festival that we talked to a couple years later. We're like, what? But because they had accepted our second movie, Spring. And we were like, did you end up seeing Resolution? Did you like it? We didn't hear back from you. They're like, we never received it. We found out that the DVD had broken in the mail. It oh. Just and that's, that, that was why we didn't end up going to a film festival. So, 
Did both of you come to Los Angeles with the intent of uh, working in film and becoming filmmakers? I know, Aaron, you're from Florida, from Tampa Springs. And, uh, and Justin, you, uh, it wasn't much of a schlep to go from San Diego, which is where I went to school as well. I went to San Diego State and Grossmont College there. So we share a little of that background. But did you come to LA to, to become filmmakers? I definitely did. I, I came out of Florida State University Film School, um, which is great film school. And, uh, and I was even making films before that. As I, I started making films in like sixth or seventh grade. And uh, so as soon as I, as soon as I possibly could, and I felt like I had a film education, I, I moved out to Los Angeles. Um, and that's why I got the, the internship that where I met Justin. I, I had come out to Los Angeles to be a filmmaker, but I just kind of hit a wall and been like, I don't really know how to break through or do this in terms of going through the proper channels, like, like go work for a producer, try to meet people, write scripts, try to get those scripts made, all those things. And, um, and so I went back to school and finished all my prerequisites for medical school and I was accepted to medical school. And the only reason I met Aaron was because I had this year before medical school would start and I had really nothing else to do except like bar 10 nights and take internships, places and filmmaking in areas I'd never tried before. Commercials one, I was like, I'll try making commercials, see how that goes. Anyways, that's how we met. We and, met how did your parents feel about <laughs> giving up medical school to make movies? You know, it, it was weird because like the week that decision was made, we had just sold Resolution um, out of its premiere at Tribeca Film Festival, a small sale. But regardless, I had I had like more than doubled that money I had spent on it. And it still wasn't very much money but it was more than the debt I'd be in after finishing medical school. So mm -hmm. from a very practical trade, having a job standpoint, it made a lot of logical sense. And I, they weren't the type of people who were like, like they were gonna be embarrassed at dinner parties to tell their friends I wasn't a doctor. And instead I was a, you know, a, a, an independent filmmaker who, uh, who survives paycheck to paycheck. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, they, they, were, they were totally fine with it. Well, you guys are just a living example of the best possible results of doing it yourself. Um, you together, between the two of you, you write, you direct, you produce, you edit, you shoot, uh, you do the VFX, um, and you even act as well, uh, particularly in The Endless, where you two are the stars of the movie. So tell me about how you went about creating that first movie, how you got the uh, the balls to put it together and to do it all yourself and then to get it to those festivals um and this is still a resolution we it was it wasn't really the balls <laughs> it was it was kind of the only option really uh it was kind of like just there we only knew how to make diy films uh that was kind of that that was what we did together that was what we did in every way and so, you know, Justin had the, the foresight to write something where there wasn't a word in the script that he didn't know how we could execute, you know? Um, there, wasn't, there wasn't stuff to, to figure out on a, uh, on, a, on a money level, you know? There wasn't a, well, where is this place? Where do, how do we find a, because even writing a scene that takes place in a bar, which is so common, bars are $800 a day. You know, minimum wage job, that's that's a few months of work, you know, like that's just an ungodly amount of 
of uh, labor just to rent a bar for a day. And that's, by the way, that's a cheap bar location in Los Angeles. So, um, so it was, it was backed all the way up into, um, in, into what we knew how to make. Um, and so it, in some ways it was, um, it was an act of desperation, you know, where it's, it's, it's just how you can make movies because the alternative is just not make movies. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's what we did. The good news is, is, um, you know, we were both working in the industry in a place where everyone's in the industry. So a lot of our friends could help us. Um, and so, you know, we know a great gaffer, a great production designer, a great, great sound person um, that we were able to, um, you know, pay a little bit, but really, I mean, it's, it was them just also wanting to kind of do what we were doing, which is just hand over fist, go make a movie and, uh, and have our names on it and have something to say as ours. And, and Justin, did all of those uh, hats that the two of you wore, were they things that you already knew how to do or you had learned them during the course of the commercial production internship and the like? Oh, they were actually things knew how to do prior from, from film school, but mostly from just working on a whole bunch of short films that'll hopefully never see the light of day. And, and again, all these like spec ad commercials and all these little tiny stories being told of filmmaking, a lot of this stuff was picked up there. Um, yeah, and just having a good idea of like how, how you could make a feature film with such a small crew. Um, and then, but also what's also interesting is like, I don't, that when, when I think back on like the content of Resolution, the, the creatively, like what that story is and what that movie is, it's interesting because I think if Aaron and I had more experience in the industry, it may like it, it might have like ended up fitting like more squarely like within one genre. Mm. And I don't say that out of regret. I say it out of like just what dumb luck. Because I think I, I don't know who knows what it is about your movie that appeals to people, but I think maybe one of the things that appeals to people about that movie is that um it it's like it came from being inspired by like Richard Linklater character dramas. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like, like weird, deep sci-fi. And I, it was such a, it was such a weird evaluation things that like, if you had, if you had pitched that to someone through the proper channels, they'd probably just think you were crazy. They'd probably, they'd probably <laughs> call you, not even crazy. They probably think this person needs a lot more experience before they can make a good movie. You know, yeah. something like that, you know, where it's like they don't know the principles of like what, you know, but it, but it's they're not wrong, by the way, in terms of what is marketable and what is not you, on the page. You just have no idea, you know, but nobody knows. Nobody actually knows. Um, and uh, and so there's things that kind of like check the boxes a lot more easily. And uh, and honestly, it was a it was a thing where we didn't quite know precisely what uh, what we would have been told no about well the originality way. the originality of your films is what has given you some su such success in the independent world and leading into the marvel universe which we'll get to but um the whole your whole philosophy of making films seems to be make movies of ideas and go places that aren't normally gone to and assume the intelligence of the audience rather than 
making movies down to the widest possible audience. Yeah. Thank you. We like the way you put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I, I we, we don't put even that quite that much thought into uh um we try to avoid thoughts of genre i guess is a way to say it uh i mean mick we've talked about this actually before but but it's it's uh it's once you've already started putting some boundaries on your movie by saying what kind of movie it is um and of course sometimes that's actually a really helpful uh, way to, to to craft something but um, but we normally just kind of start talking in, in full sentences about like what story we want to tell. Um, and eventually we kind of realize exactly where the where the film lands, you know, and that doesn't mean that we don't, uh, you know, we produce our own movies, too. <laughs> we, right. we have to be thinking about exactly what the end result of this is going to be. But it's uh, it's more of a description rather than something that uh, that helps us guide what we're creating. What was your experience the first time you saw Resolution with an audience? Was it at a festival? Was it a screening of recruited friends? Um, I'd just love to know, after all this do-it-yourself work where you're doing every job possible, what was it like when you finally saw it with an audience? It was, I mean, it was genuinely, it was a I don't know if we're, hopefully we don't over romanticize it in our heads, but it was like the first time we ever saw a movie we made was at Tribeca Film Festival 2012. And I remember just sitting there in the audience and, and, and trying to gauge if certain things hit, you know, the last time we had seen the movie, we'd been in a sound mix. We were wondering, it's like, is this part scary? Is this part unsettling? Are they going to laugh here? And when those things start hitting, mm. it feels really, really, it feels really good. And I, and I, and it kind of takes it back to like, you know, a if a tiny movie, it doesn't really matter like what the scale is, like what you did with it scale wise. If people, we use this term, like, are they scared? But it's, it's more specific. It's like, are they unsettled? They feel tense about something. And then do they give a little laugh at a, a little joke you did? And if you like pull that off a few times, you feel really good about the screening. <laughs> <laughs> well, you pull it off a few times, it has a cumulative effect and they're willing to go on that journey with you for the rest of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, th there's a, a phrase I heard once, I'm so sorry if I'm just quoting some kind of, uh, <laughs> if I'm just the lamest quote in the world, but somebody once said like, the, the director tries to, to cast a spell at the very beginning of the film you have about 10 minutes to do it or something like that and for some people it takes and for other people it, it just doesn't the, the spell doesn't never takes and that's kind of what you're left with i mean there's films that get better as they go on and all of that but there is a thing where you say this is our world this is our movie this is our tone this is our character these are our characters um and you just pray that that spell means something to somebody you really do well, and you you cast a spell with that first movie was the couple of movies that followed are sort of sequels. You can watch them independent of one another, but they do have linking material. Did you intend Resolution to be the groundwork for a universe of, of ideas that you'd had? We weren't talking, actually, was it? we never spoke of of doing like anything like a sequel or anything like that when we we're making it or even for years after. Um, but we were constantly talking about the characters and the world and other stories. 
in a weird way that was like again another instance we probably looked and sounded crazy like we just kept talking about it even when we were shooting the uh when we were shooting resolution we were constantly talking about like other stories in that world and all of that um and then we just like would decide we just literally actually we just basically decide like every three years or four years we just decide like let's do another one yeah. <laughs> and, then, like, yeah. and we just keep talking yeah it's a weird it's a weird thing but then also the movies like like the word we can never wrap our heads around like what they were because the word sequel doesn't quite do it and like we kind of just come around to like oh it's it's serialized content <laughs> like, there you go. Like, like, that like sounds like something an executive would understand. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's got the same connection, I guess, as the Marvel universe or something has, where it's like, oh, you yeah. have characters walk through each other's movies, but they're not like sequels to each other. You know, the Benson Morehouse, uh, Morehead uh, universe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is that they do have a common theme. They deal with technology. They deal with alternate realities and interdimensional realities sometimes chemically induced and otherwise through that technology. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious as to your interest in science and other dimensions, other worlds, and, and what kind of research you've done, or is it philosophical stuff from your own uh, conversations? Wow. Well, one thing is, it's crazy you just said that because we made a new movie. We've made a new movie basically in this universe that we're in post on right now. And everything you just said is thematically what the movie is <laughs> about. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, uh, I mean, it just comes from obviously our own personal obsessions here and there that are born from all over the place. Uh, things that our parents showed us and, uh, you know, the X-Files and obviously I see, I mean, obviously Stephen King is, is huge for everyone on this podcast. And, um, <laughs> uh and uh you know sometimes you you you're up late at night and you're alone and you have uh, a glass of whiskey and you open up wikipedia and start clicking a bunch of links and and you end up down a bit of a rabbit hole um there's there's it's just tons and tons of things that uh that just uh, anything that triggers the dopamine receptors of interest in the brain normally around new you know our no our our, our brains are attracted to novelty and it feels sometimes like weirdly we've seen everything under the sun, um, even in our even in like the slightly off the beaten path kind of fiction and um, and uh, websites and all of that. And so anytime someone can present a new form of reality of any kind to explore, uh, we normally just chase that down, see where it goes. Well, your films are rabbit holes on their own. I mean, you get sucked in. The storytelling first starts about the characters and their situations, and you get hooked into them emotionally, and then they take you into these uh, interdimensional places. So you had done Resolution. Spring followed it uh, a couple years later, and it was, again, not exactly uh, a sequel, but had similar philosophies and and linking material if you're uh, willing to see it or able to see it. So after that, you started getting offers from studios and things. You're taking meetings at, at studios. Um, tell me about that experience, these indie guys. And here you're you're going into the 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 annals of uh, commercial cinema. Well, it was weird because we we actually got. I mean, sometimes quite literally the exact same meetings after 
uh, after resolution. So like resolution in spring, it was like, oh, we were kind of getting the same meetings. Some of them were different, um, but it, it was weird because there wasn't it, there wasn't even any any really like tough decisions made. No, it wasn't it wasn't like, oh, my God, should we do this? Um, this bigger this bigger movie? Uh, yeah, and it was like it, it was really easy just to be like, oh, this this isn't right for us. Just came down to like everything. I was like, we don't know. Like it wasn't even like a judgment of whether the material is good or bad or anything. It was just more like we just literally don't know what to do with it. It just wasn't. We didn't. We had no. We had no take on it. Um, and thus, we were kind of unemployed for a very long time after spring <laughs> specifically. Oh, yeah. And it's weird too because I think, you know, even if you, <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if the I don't know what the perception is. I feel like even if you if you're like you watch spring, you're like this movie's terrible. Uh, I don't like these guys, whatever it is. It's like the movie did pretty well for a like VOD release independent film during that time period. Um, but we could not, we could not get a job. We could not get a job. <laughs> get a job. And it was, and, uh, and so we were like doing lots of like YouTube video, like we direct anonymously direct YouTube videos for like um, YouTube musicians and stuff. Yeah. And uh, that, and I mean, it, it was lean times. Let's just say that. <laughs> and by the way, it was lean times after the endless too. Like, like independent film yeah. is still a, a bit of a, uh, it's a place to go to, uh, to live your passion. Let's say it that yeah. way. Uh, well, the endless, yeah. the endless seems a little bit like a turning point for you, kind of a reaction to your studio meetings experience. It feels like the most personal of that trilogy. Um, not only because you are the stars of this, but it also brings the the issue of cults into play which i i found deepened it even even more and found it interesting so tell me about how maybe that was a response to the 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 hollywood world that you uh, found not to be offering uh, mentally stimulating ideas <laughs> well it's interesting because it wasn't it wasn't even just like hollywood it was like you know, we had a yeah. we had a project um, that was a European co-production about the occultist Aleister Crowley, and oh, wow. even that was like we were in love with that project. And we couldn't get it made. We did everything you could possibly. We just couldn't do it. So it wasn't just the traditional Hollywood system. It was every system. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> so that movie was like that movie was like a like we had like a come to Jesus moment one day where it's like, we just have to make something and we, we got to make the best thing we can with no money. Yeah. <laughs> because that, like, it, it, that was, that was genuinely it. And it's not to have a martyr complex because we do understand that sometimes, I mean, <laughs> there's another, there's another truth about it. It's like, people say things like, Oh, it's not what you know, it's who, you know, or it's like, Oh, you just need one good calling card film or whatever. Here's what I'd say. It's a casino. <laughs> <laughs> it's a casino. You pull the lever a million times, you might win ten times, you might never win, you know. And uh, and we were just pulling that damn lever, uh, and that that's all it was. Like like spring did well, resolution did well, and it, it wasn't it wasn't like our reps weren't trying. It wasn't that people hated us. It just like the casino, the house was winning, you know. 
And yeah. So well, even for me, after The Stand, the most successful miniseries in history, I didn't direct for three years until The Shining. There we Just, go. Wait, talk things about fall that. apart at, at the height of, of uh, the success of the projects that you do. And you, your success on the independent level is remarkable because it's so difficult to do it in the non-studio world. So, I mean, this reaction of, of doing endless because nobody else is going to give you anything is to do it again yourself. There is a great deal of bravery in committing to an independent uh, film career. What, well, actually, I want to I want to ask you, unless I'm going to bore the heck out of your uh, listeners that they've heard it before. But what, what were those three years like? Well, like a lot, a, a lot of development. Um, there was a project called Rose Red that was an original screenplay yeah. that Stephen King had written. Years later, it. It, years later, it became a miniseries. Um, but Steven Spielberg was the producer. He wanted it to be my follow up to The Stand and King and Spielberg were two 800 pound gorillas and I was the 50 pound chimp in the middle and they both had different ideas of where it wanted to go. So it went through development for a long time before they decided they wanted to make different kinds of movies. And so that was a year of my life spent in developing a project that never went anywhere. And then I would talk to people about different things, but once you've done the stand, it's really hard to get excited about you know, a TV series or episodic or, or even the feature films were, you know, teenage horror movies that it's not, I'm not the best person to do those. There are better people at doing those than me. Because as you know, horror is not respected as an intelligent cinematic pursuit. The way that you guys make movies and the way that I would like to be making movies is engaging the brain as well as blood and guts. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting though, isn't it though? Like when you talk about like, oh, you didn't want to do a teen horror movie. You've probably seen teen horror movies that you like on occasion. Certain people sure. do those insanely They're well. So good at They're them. so good at it. Sure. And then like and you're just like, it's not that you're not doing it because you think it's bad. You're just not doing it because you're like, I'm the wrong I, guy. We literally don't know how to do it. Yeah, exactly. we literally we actually, don't know how to do it. We actually had an experience uh, that was just like this on on a, on a, we we did get uh, floated a script that became an extremely successful horror movie that we love uh, that um, uh, we I, to this day we're just like we wouldn't have done it that well. <laughs> we, we don't yeah. we, did, we didn't know how <laughs> they, to do it. They didn't did know how to do it way better. And they slayed it. You know? <laughs> Absolutely slayed it. Um, well, uh, well, yeah, tell not, me about the experience. Yeah. Tell me about the experience of the endless and and mm -hmm. what it was like because you had these opportunities and you turned them down and finally, like you said, it's like we're going to start over again, like we did with the resolution and do it ourselves from beginning to end. So tell me that decision and 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 what you wanted that movie to be. I mean. To start out in like one, they'll get more interesting, interesting than this, I promise. But like in one <laughs> very brief statement about it, from the moment we decided to do that, it was like, this is going to sound really corny. It was like the movie wanted to be made. It was already made. It was already yeah. made. It was just like everything just flowed. And then it, it was, as soon as we just made that decision, everything flowed from there. And it was a tiny budget, but we ended up with a budget. We had never, we had, never had anyone invest in our movie before. Like all of a sudden, like all these things fell into place mm -hmm. and uh, it was pretty wild. Yeah, it was. There's actually, there's this other piece of it that I always keep on forgetting about, which is we tried to make a weird, completely alternate universe version of the endless while shooting. No, no. While 
touring for spring uh, we just thought like okay so spring is spring has gotten into some some cool film festivals which will take us to interesting places on the globe let's buy a little camera and a, and a little microphone and we'll make a little movie on the road and um and we'll kind of and we we had this rough outline and we we were going to improvise and it was a comedy it was called the ufo cult comedy and uh we had a particular wardrobe we'd, we'd always wear and uh we shot it at like like five or six scenes for it in different countries around the globe and uh, sorry different film festivals we're, we're not like we had like 800 dollars in our bank accounts so it was not a, <laughs> you know? and um uh we realized two things um to a lesser degree uh, it was really exhausting because to, to we were having we, we wanted to have a good time and tour spring because you only you're only in town for a day or two we didn't want to spend a whole day filming and like planning a shoot and like where do we go and get our equipment and all of that which is fun but it became exhausting we realized we were we, we weren't having as much fun making the film and it should be fun the other thing is that we're not good at improv <laughs> and so we were just like these scenes aren't good these are just bad scenes they should be they should be written and planned um and so we just uh, we walked away from it and forgot about it for probably six months or something like that yeah. you know we just forgot it like that's why we kind of forget that it actually ties into the endless even though we were playing alpha versions of our characters um right. yeah well uh, you guys had acted before so now all of the weight of the the lead performances is on your shoulders tell me about how that changed things because you're still writer director producer editor cinematographer all of that stuff um uh, but now you've added something even more heavy you're in front of the camera and you've got to connect with the uh, audience in that regard well i think there's there's like there's two cheats going on with acting in that movie one is is that when you cast yourself you can do as much rehearsal time as you want um, you know as much as you're willing to we live upstairs and downstairs from each other we just rehearse every single day really get the scenes <laughs> nailed down before you get to set and then the other thing that happens is is that on a tiny little indie film when you're acting in it and you're also the filmmakers behind it you're doing so many other jobs simultaneously that it kind of removes the cortisol and the anxiety and all of that from it and it kind of frees you up in a weird kind of way it, mm -hmm. it it's actually less stressful because you don't don't have time to get stuck in your own head really you know you've you've done that you should have done that you should always do the work before you get to set anyways and then you get to set and you're actually less stressed because you're maybe you're more stressed about the million other ways your project could not be finished yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's uh there's also a third thing that is um that's that's very much worth mentioning i we wear a lot of hats but we don't do this a lot uh with there there is there is a crew um you know we we have uh we have a producer dave lawson who is always there with us and uh um you know we have a wonderful production designer ariel vida a camera operator slash dp uh will sampson you know we, we've got we've got people who've worked with us on as many movies as they will let us uh have with them and uh and so that and that's that's not just you know that's not just paying lip service um you know what we all do is hard work but that, but that's it's not this it's not this miracle we do have like people that show up every day and make sure that it happens as well you know right well all of your films and uh moon Knight as well you're working as a team tell me how it works as a directing team you're not brothers you are uh, people who seem to share the same creative vision um 
how is it broken down? I know Aaron, you shoot, uh, <clears throat> and sometimes Justin, you write, and Aaron doesn't. But how? What is the breakdown of how you actually prep and shoot a film as a team? It's not really. There's there is no breakdown at all, actually. But there there is one thing though that's kind of interesting, that maybe kind of unexpected, is that um, the more time goes on, the more you're kind of like you're running a very weird small company with like lots of things that need to be done um we today we both split up tasks finding stock footage yep <laughs> you know, like, like and so a lot of it's that where it's just like oh like just dig in however you can and every day we're both doing things that we've never done before um so, for example, when when you're on the set and you're directing a, a sensitive scene with actors, um, does one of you work more with the actors and one more technically, or or is it something that you share? Because I know the famous story of um, "I Want to Hold Your Hand," or no, used cars. Um, Kurt Russell was uh, the star of that movie. Bob Zemeckis was the director. Steven Spielberg was the producer. And Spielberg would often give notes to Kurt Russell. And Kurt finally said, wait, I'll take direction from you or I'll take directions from Bob Zemeckis, but I can't do it from both. So what is the situation on your sets in that regard? Oh. Uh, yeah, ne like never, never had that happen. No, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, we, we love directing it. We but it's a good we, story. Yeah. 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 We, yeah. we try to like, kind of like always stay to each other's left and right. It's three o'clock and nine o'clock, you know, and when we got to go talk <laughs> to an actor, here's, here's what it happens. There's only one thing we, we shoot a little bit faster than no. I mean, sorry, actually, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I haven't been in enough other sets. We shoot actually pretty quickly. There's only one little delay. There's about 20 seconds after you call cut, which is we just chat really quick. And then we go and deliver the notes together, you know, and that's that's like that's about it. But because we're chatting it out, we're figuring out all the problems so that take two or take three isn't is just as good as what would be something where you're kind of churning on it and you end up on take six, take seven. You know what I mean? Um, you, you, so you kind of find out after take one, which you would have found out after take three, if yeah. you got a sounding board and it takes an extra 20 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of test out little ideas. Be like, should it be that? And quick little, like, yes, no. And you know, that's about it. But it's, that's pretty descriptive, right? Like we yeah. just kind of go and, and then we like walk in one time. I remember we were shooting synchronic and, uh, it was like day 20 and, uh, and Anthony, uh, Anthony Mackie, the lead of that, was uh, he was just you know sitting waiting for waiting for take two or something like that, and he just saw us both walk up and he just started cracking up, and, he just, and we're like, "What?" He's just like, "You guys, you just kind of like have the same pace, you know, and you kind of just walk up like two two, <laughs> you know, we we have the same we, smile on our face as we're just like about to like give him. Yeah. We do, we do uh, in scenes that. If in scenes that like one person's acting in and the other person's operating a camera. Oh yeah. That's probably funny to watch because one person's holding a heavy camera out of breath and sweating and like trying to give a note to the person who's acting. <laughs> so I just, you no, know, like, can you, can you be you, just less of a gap and be more scared? <laughs> Wait, I don't think I should be more scared. Yeah. yeah I, the camera's I, really heavy. Action. action. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what about yeah, as yeah. actors? Now, when we're doing it like that, when we're like literally operating for the other person, it's hilarious. The takes are like 45 minutes long. 
because we never cut. We're just like, yeah. Anyway, sorry. We're having too good of a time. <laughs> no, no. What about as actors? Do do you have uh, uh, opportunities to be actors for hire in somebody else's projects? Is that uh, something you're interested in? It happens. It happens. It happens occasionally. Yeah. It's hard, you know, when you're when you're not hitting the pavement full time doing that, and the, the day job's not the right word. When your primary position is directing stuff, it's kind of hard to take, you know, the time it takes to go hit the pavement with casting directors and go on auditions and do all those things. That I think we're already like at a at a point where it's like, oh, you just you. You start to wonder if you're like, like, do I have time to do laundry? <laughs> <laughs> like, like you, yeah, like, am I eating? Am I eating? So for for you, Mick, for you, uh, uh, if you want two people to play, uh, you know, nearly identical twins, we'll do it. Um, and uh, anyone listening to this, just know <laughs> we're we're not going to be on the audition circuit because of what Justin just said, but we'll probably just say yes if you hit us up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Uh, it's amazing how many uh, directors uh, do have the internal actor demon within. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's so fun. It's so fun when you're acting. It's all fun, frankly. Um, you know, it's it's the the idea of making your own film that you're acting in is one of the most exciting um, prospects that you can ever imagine. But uh, but also when when uh, when you're performing for somebody else. Uh, one is what's really cool is it gets you to, it has the same quality as, uh, as when you meet a new actor for the first time and you get to kind of like learn what kind of foods they eat and music they listen to and what, what, what kind of water you need to give them to, to make them grow <laughs> and that kind of stuff, you know, um, it has that same thing where you can like hear how other directors talk to you and see what you like. And, uh, yeah, it's, and what you don't like. And, uh, and then kind of feed it into your own world. And also it's, um, you know, you can focus exclusively on one thing, on the performance. And that's actually, that's that feels great. Well, your next film was Synchronic. And in a way that feels like the Benson-Moorhead studio movie. Um, it's a bit more mainstream while still maintaining its intellectual and creative um, veracity but um, it's of a bigger scope and you're casting. You've got Captain America as the lead, Anthony Mackie in there, which uh, we'll talk about whether or not that led to the Moon Knight situation with Marvel. But tell me about that. You're working with somebody who's really established and well-known and now is a movie star. Um, and it feels like it's on a different level. It's, it's a little more accessible to a wider audience than the three earlier films without being any less intelligent. So what was the genesis of that? So weird because looking back on it, uh, it, 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 it was kind of written in the same time. Actually, it was written before The Endless. It was written in the same yeah, time oh period. God. It was written in the same time period as the endless. It was written before the endless, and it, it was like kind of a reaction to, to um, kind of like trying to solve the problem of like uh, a lot of the material we were generating, like whether it was the Alistair Crowley movie or if it was stuff kind of like Spring, it was all that kind of thing. It was impossible to get made. 
And it was about trying to like, that script was like trying to hit the much smaller target of like trying to write something that has a place in the movie business, have a, has a place in the commercial movie business at large. But without, but like, it wasn't an idea of compromise. It was just like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how do you, how do you get out of this thing where you, like these projects keep falling apart and have something that, that, uh, that, that you can get made on a more commercial level, I guess. But the weird thing is, is like that was written 2015, 16, mm -hmm. like yeah. cusp of 2015, 16. The world was a very different place mm -hmm. at, in 2015. And then, um, and then we went and made The Endless and a very, very different movie with a very different spirit to it. Um, a much more punk rock movie, probably in a lot of ways. And then, uh, but that opened the door so that we could go make Synchronic that had been written uh, many months prior. And, uh, and it, that movie was like, on the one hand, it's a bigger budget. On the other hand, it's like at the budget range that you the smallest don't want to work at yeah <laughs> like, we're, like it was, it's, it's so crazy that we were just like this is by far the biggest budget we've ever had and yet we were by far the smallest movie shooting in new orleans at the time uh -huh. um like we were tiny people were and it was a it was a uh it's it's crazy when you when it, it it was a miracle that the fact that that movie got made on 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 the budget that it was made is unbelievable and honestly a huge testament to dave our producer um yeah <laughs> tell me about the choice to shooting in new orleans i mean i've shot there a couple of tv shows and it was an amazing experience but the atmosphere it gives to that story that very drug-addled story of yours uh is is really beautiful well it was i mean the from the first there was never a version of that script in any form that didn't take place in New Orleans. It would have been really hard to take the New Orleans out of the script. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, like the, the things, the, the things kind of blocking that happening are, are weird. It's like, well, then you'd have to make it not about an over the counter designer synthetic drug. Um, because a lot of other places don't have that phenomenon. It's kind of, it's, it's not exclusively American, but it's, relatively american that idea and then the other thing was was like where else in america can you have a time travel story take place that like kind of pulls back the layers like that we have all these really interesting different points in time and that this guy as simple as like this guy's apartment is now an apartment at one time it was water and uh <laughs> and 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 uh and you know and the interesting like the french colonialism spanish colonialism all those things it was always New Orleans. Um, you know, if, if we had based it in Los Angeles, we always make the joke that it's like, yeah, every time I went back in time, he was like on a patch of desert. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, time travel rears its head in more than one of your movies. Tell me about the appeal of that concept. Well, I, I, I disagree. Uh, I, I think time travel is only synchronic, but we do, okay. we do mess around with time uh, a whole lot. You know, and and that's that that would be fair. You know, we have time loops, which I guess you could call time right. travel. That's true. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, uh, a better but, description. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And uh. And in spring, we have somebody who's immortal. Um. Uh. But I I think what it is is uh you know we going back to the absolute core of 
why we like telling stories and one of the reasons why Justin and I like spending time together and that kind of thing is, um, you know, we, we look around for things that actually, um, they frighten us on some kind of a primordial level. And uh, there's things that, that, that scare us on an aesthetic level and in a visceral level, Th you know, things like um, uh, vampires, you know, like, you know, like uh, zombies, you know what I mean? Like, like scary monsters, you know, monsters, that's the word. Uh, or, or even just sharks, but like things that are, that are in our real world. Um, but, but, but on a primordial level, on things where it's like, all right, I'm about to go to bed. I don't think a shark's going to come get me. I don't think a zombie is about to break down my door. I'm about to go to bed, about to fall asleep. And I was like, going to die someday. <laughs> you know, like everyone I know is going to die someday. Everyone I love, they're going to die. It's going to come for me. Uh, and you know, everything's going to get bad and all of that. And that's what keeps you up at night. And it scares you on this, this other level. And that's unpleasant. That's not fun. Scary. That's, that's just actually unpleasant, scary. Um, but time being kind of this, uh, the, you can frame it in plenty of different ways. Uh, time is actually very beautiful in a lot of ways, but time is the enemy and time is this, this, uh, Lovecraftian thing that inexorably is coming for you at all times. Uh, is something that we bond over. It's something that we think about all the time and, and it scares the hell out of us. And I think that's why we've crafted a lot of stories that involve time. That said, it's been four movies. Uh, our fifth will probably not involve it quite as much. <laughs> we'll explore some other stuff. But um, yeah, that, you said that's a decent, yeah, yeah. Well, what's cool about you guys as a team is it's sort of like being in a band together. You're starting out together and you have somebody to share the experience of your success or just plain experiences along the way that, um, you know, it's, it's a creative marriage, which is also a cliche to say, but between you guys, you share each step of the progress of your careers together. And that seems to be kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is a beautiful thing. There's it also, it's funny, not, not to say that if you don't have a creative partner, you won't experience this in some way, but through the highs and lows of like, things are good, things are bad, wherever you're at, how you feel about everything, you are held to always being you. You can't become so self-delusional <laughs> that, like, that, like, that you stray off the path. Because mm -hmm. that other person is with you all the time. They know exactly who you are. And you will always be held up to that. You can't you never get lost in self-delusion. Yeah. Not, now that I think about it, it sucks. Yeah, you're resentful. <laughs> you're, you're, you sound resentful. You sound <laughs> um, uh, but speak, actually, speaking of bands, it's funny. Uh, Mick, you, I grew up at like, I grew up at roughly... 68th in university and 28th in broadway like my yeah. two places i lived in san diego but you've lived in those kind of neighborhoods right and you were around yeah there's a lot of those 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 neighborhoods have like long uh histories of having band scenes whether it's like you know earlier i mean yeah i think about like i'm pretty sure rocket from the crypt used to like audition down the street from my house when i was when i was little uh rehearsed down the street and like, so did like Blink-182 and so did like all these bands. But then I remember you tell me once you worked at the same small newspaper as Cameron Crowe. Yeah, the San Diego door. I was a music yeah. journalist for them as Cameron was. Uh, my band Horse Feathers played a lot in San Diego in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, I went to San Diego State. I, 
I grew up, a lot of my formative years were in El Cajon of all places. And uh, so, yeah, we have that history. I also went to Grossmont College. I know El Cajon well. Ah, a two-year school. That's amazing. We were, um, on a pod, we were on Doug Benson's podcast recently, and he also went to Grossmont College. I remember him. Yeah. <laughs> I remember his name. Well, right now, uh, the sun is going down in uh, Budapest, where you are on the deck outside your apartment. So <laughs> you are there because after years of rejecting the machine um, to do intimate personal films, of all things, you're part of the Marvel Universe. Moon Knight is a six-episode series, so far six episodes, that you guys are directing. You are hired hands. You're part of the project. But tell me about the difference in the commitment and the work, the kind of work it is where um, you have every kind of crew member. You have all the facilities you need. It's somebody else's pocketbook and you're able to take the reins of that. Tell me about the difference of experience. That's where we get, it's, it's funny. I think we literally can't talk, well, we shouldn't talk about things specifically, but about this project, but we've been on several projects recently. Yeah. Uh, we've yeah. been on several projects recently that are bigger, uh, bigger TV shows, things like that. And it's interesting um, having that happen simultaneously with making another indie film. We also made another indie film recently. And doing those things right, at, literally at the same time, literally, at the, same <laughs> literally time. at the same time, has been a really interesting experience to where, um, our, it's like you, you love it all wholeheartedly. And the movies that we, that we were making to be like, oh, this is like, if we don't do this, we're, we're going to literally just have nothing to do and not make a living. Those movies have become even more fun. Yeah. They become, they become even more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. The, you just, you, 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 you absolutely must keep the spirit alive in on both levels because, uh, and actually, honestly, it just brings twice the joy. Um, you know, we, we, we did uh, an episode of uh, Jordan Peele's the twilight zone. Right. Um, and it was so, it's so, it's so cool, you know, um, but uh, but you 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 work on that during the day. You put your entire heart and soul into it, and you go home at night. And either you are um, you're in another city uh, with nothing to do, and you turn on the the TV or you turn on some movie and you watch it, which is super fun, or you work on a movie, <laughs> which is also super fun, you know. And so we try to we try to balance those things to keep our uh, keep our knives really sharp. Um, but honestly, we, we love both of it. And that seems to be the plan going forward forever. Yeah. Isn't it great to actually have the keys to the kingdom in someone else's uh, hands? You know, they own the car, but you're the driver. Um, the responsibility creatively is yours, but on an executive and financial level, it's up to somebody else. And you don't have to be responsible for that part. I mean, you do as responsible filmmakers in making your days and in your budget and the like, but really you are handed the keys to a Cadillac or to a Bentley or to, you know, uh, something, whereas you're used to driving a Chevrolet. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're when you're driving the old Honda Civic, uh, it if it rains and you don't finish <laughs> one day with the old Honda Civic, you don't finish it. Yeah. And that's like something about that where it's like, oh, you don't every single time you shoot a movie, you don't want to feel like if there is a very subtle act of God, you don't finish your movie. Yeah. Uh, Synchronic was actually a lot like that, where it, it there, there were days where the, the forecast called for rain and we say, if it calls for rain, there is no other option. There's just rain and we don't have the scene and we don't have another day to shoot it, you know, and it just didn't rain. We got that lucky. Um, uh, you know, that yeah. sort of thing happens on any level during the stand. Yeah. So much of the stand was shot outdoors and it was a hundred day schedule. And if it rained, it's raining in the scene because we shot it <laughs> where the weather changed constantly. And, you know, we couldn't get a day behind or it would screw up our obligations to the next locations and actor commitments and all of that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. You, you have to roll with the punches. But when you're funding the film or arranging the funding personally with the people you deal with as producers yourselves, that's a, that's a, a hairy experience. Yeah. How many how many days uh, did you have to shoot the stand? 100. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Uh, 95 Damn. scripted. Well, you nailed it. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you still remember day 100 when you finished? And I sure like, do. Tell the story. Tell the story. That was Las Vegas. And uh, oh, oh my yeah, God. It was the biggest stuff because our out of 20 weeks of shooting, the last seven were six day weeks, all on location. Oh, and, no. And it was just a hammer every day. You know, as much fun as the stand was, it was also the hardest I've ever worked in my life and, and worth it. You know, as you say, the process is fun. You're making movies, it's fun. You go home and you're working on a script, it's fun. All of those elements are fun. Some of them uh, beat the shit out of you, but, you know, uh, look at the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a really good point. I, we we have this we have this intensely fun job, and uh, sometimes it's 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 weird to even ask to get paid for it, you know, because it's it's what yeah. you would do even if you couldn't. Uh, but I I have the luxury of I, I you know have these wild high adventure dreams every single night, you know, and every night I every morning I wake up and it's like okay no I didn't, I didn't just traverse an entire continent or whatever, but then you go to work and try to recreate it. Yeah, to be able to dream awake for a living is pretty remarkable. Well, guys, thank you so much. It's great to catch up with you and get some insight into all of this stuff. Uh, I can't wait to see what happens with Moon Knight, and I can't wait to see the next uh, unnamed indie film that you just wrapped up. Uh, love your work and can't wait to get together with you guys when you're back in town. Likewise and likewise and likewise. Thank you, Mick. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. 
Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.